Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Tabitha Ewing, the author of Rumor, Diplomacy, and War in Enlightenment Paris, and the book was published by Oxford University Studies in the Enlightenment in 2014. Hi there, Tabitha. Hi, Roxanne. Could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in studying France? Oh, what got me interested in studying France? Um, I loved France. I think that was the first thing. I went for a visit when I was in my teens, and I appreciated the culture. And like other Americans, I was drawn to the great wines and the cheeses and the food and the appreciation for culture, the aesthetic values. Um, I think it was fairly typical. I guess as an African-American, I was also interested in the long and rich history and tradition and some mythology, as it turns out, about uh, French appreciation for African-American culture. And what brought you to the subject of this book in particular? Oh, I was a graduate student at Princeton working with Robert Darnton and Natalie Zeman Davis, and um, the subject of social history, the uh, developments in the history of the book as it would emerge as a subfield, um, the early modern period more broadly. I had been introduced to that as an undergraduate at Bard College by my advisor, Alice Stroop. And I followed up on that interest by going to graduate school to get a doctorate. And uh, Bob Darton at a certain point mentioned this amazing set of documents in the police archives of Paris. And I had worked in the uh, police archives for my undergraduate thesis. And so I was lured back to that domain. Early on in the book, uh, Tabitha, you say that this research began, and I'm quoting you here, as an investigation into the conversations ordinary people held on any given day in 18th century Paris based on the best records available to us 250 years later. And I feel like there's so much methodologically contained in that opening sentence of the book, and I want to sort of take that apart with you as we continue to talk. But let's let's start with some context here. The book examines the decade of the 1740s and is focused on the war of Austrian succession that lasted from uh, 1740 to 1748. So could you just give us a quick overview of that war? Uh, I know that's incredibly complicated uh, episode, but could you give us a bit of of context here? Yes. Um, Let's see, where to begin? That war is the second succession war of the century, I believe. Um, The war of Spanish succession preceded it and is Um, quite well known because of um, the fact that it would have established a French heir on the Spanish throne. And according to the then King of France, Louis XIV, the Pyrenees Mountains would have come down and French power would have extended itself to um, that of the Spanish territories. That's not exactly what ended up happening. Not surprisingly, much of Europe protested and Although a French heir would be seated on the Spanish throne, he would lose the possibility of succeeding to the French throne. So 
succession crises were familiar to European peoples in the time that the Habsburgs would have a major loss. That is Charles VI, who was the uh, Austrian Archduke and also the Holy Roman Emperor, died away, died somewhat prematurely. Mm. I can't remember his precise age, um, but died somewhat prematurely and only had two daughters. Now, from our perspective, two daughters sounds tremendous, but from their (laughs) perspective, um, the idea that there needed to be a male heir, and in particular, one that would uphold the tradition, it wasn't legal, um, but the tradition that a Habsburg would sit on the imperial throne, um, that would be a problem for them. So there are two female heirs, one of whom is married to a likely possibility for seating, um, being seated on the Holy Roman Imperial throne himself, um, though he has no particular legal claim. Um, so there are, in fact, several claimants, both to Austrian territories and um, some possibilities, of course, legally speaking, constitutionally speaking, that some of those other claimants would be able to become emperors. And so there are two succession crises simultaneously, one to Austrian territories and the other to the imperial throne. Um, Now, what's important about this for the start of my book is that France doesn't have really any claim to either, um, but it has a large stake in who would eventually take either one or both of those uh, uh, roles in effect. Mm -hmm. Um, The Habsburgs are the great enemies of the Bourbons for 200 years. And so the idea that France would have a say on the outcome of this is important, not only at the court of Versailles, but as it turns out, in the byways of Paris, the city of Paris, and quite possibly far beyond. And Tabitha, you you use the war in, in a number of ways that we'll talk about. Um, but because of the span of the war from 1740 to 1748, it also allows you to really take on and examine the seven, the 1740s as a decade. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. What were the features of this decade, including the war, but in addition to the war? What role uh, could could we say that this this decade plays in the broader 18th century? And, and how is that part of the, the mission in this book? Well, it, in a way, it's situated, um, what's most famous about this decade is in some ways situated in the background of my story. Um, as we know, uh, Montesquieu would publish his Spirit of the Laws at the end of this period. Mm-hmm. There are a number of important texts by Diderot, even Rousseau and others, Voltaire writing. Um, it's, it's a tremendous decade from the perspective of great Enlightenment texts as we know them. Um, part of what's intriguing for me is that in focusing on enlightenment developments, not only in the history of ideas, but in terms of defining this century, we've tended to, even when we deny it, anticipate in some ways the developments later in the century that we associate with the French Revolution mm-hmm. and um, you know, democratization, modernization. Um, and part of what intrigued me about studying war and diplomacy in this period is to signal that ordinary French people were intrigued by 
quite traditional, even courtly concerns. Um, and that isn't to say that there wasn't a fundamental relationship of the Enlightenment to rumor and talk and um, the spread of ideas in Paris in this period. But the concerns on an everyday basis were really quite conventional. And I think that that's a point that required emphasizing more than it had been in much of the literature. So we've talked about the war, we've talked about the 1740s and the relationship between what you're exploring in the book and the sort of broader context of, of enlightenment. So I want to ask you now about, about Paris. What does it mean to study Paris during this decade uh, and during this war? What about Paris's relationship to the rest of France? And, and what is the context that is Paris uh, in the 1740s that you're looking at in the book? Well, in fact, um, in some ways, by studying uh, language choices, reading habits, um, practices of sociability, Paris is both context, but it's also the thing that's in the making. Mm. Um, and that's particularly exciting because we have so much archival material that helps us to get to know there's not only archival material, but also just a wealth of printed material that helps us to get to know this important European city, an important French city. It's so close to the court. It's, it is the capital. It um, is a leader in all sorts of fashion. It's the site of so much in terms of publication, certainly legitimate publication, and um, that which is pirated in other places in the world. It's um, the site of an important experiment and by now actual institutionalization of the modern police as a structure. Mm -hmm. It's important from the perspective of, say, urban studies or urban history in that it allows for us to actually come to grips with what we call or what we have been calling public culture mm -hmm. and, um, and its emergence as something that we can talk about, that we can objectify in a certain way and actually say certain things about and establish certain qualities about it. Um, are we talking about specific neighborhoods? Are we talking about some kind of collective identity? Are we talking about uh, the relationship of identity to social media, um, political media, and so forth? And I think we can begin to talk about those things coherently, certainly by the 1740s, in part because of the expansion of all kinds of printed material. But also, I would argue, because of the circulation, clearly quite abundant based on my research and that of others, of, um, of, of manuscript political information. Mm -hmm. And that becomes one of the principal sources that I use. And the fact that those documents circulated in urban institutions, and most notably the cafe, was, I think, crucial to developing a common set of interests in these international affairs that I write about. So we, we've talked about the context now, and now I want to ask you about rumor, this notion that is so complicated and so richly explored in, in, in the book. What does rumor mean in the book? What are its multiple meanings? How are you using this term? And, and what were some of its different forms in this period that you're looking at? Well, in some ways, uh, I borrow the term, um, it's a, Translation, possibly slight mistranslation of the term that's used most commonly at the time, and that is on dit. Mm -hmm. um, and so on dit are used as a noun. Um, it's used as a verb. 
it's um, used almost interchangeably with another expression, il se répond, and then something will follow. So it indicates, um, it's a substantive, it indicates something that can be talked about. It also indicates, um, in a verb-like way, circulation. Things are circulating, things are moving, things are out there. And, um, and crucially for me, it meant, and for them, it meant that the thing that was circulating, especially information, pieces of information or opinion, um, were anonymously authored, that one couldn't obviously attribute an author to the statement that would follow. And so in this particular period, which it may not be helpful from the perspective of a specialist to say is one of uh, royal absolutism, but I think for the non-specialist, it's still a good term to give us a sense that um, subjects of France were not rights-bearing beings in the strict sense of that term, mm-hmm. that uh, political decisions were made at the top, and um, that is definitive decisions. The king had lots of advisors, but um, the ordinary subject, and even the not-so-ordinary subject, really had little to no say on the conduct of war and foreign affairs. And yet they said so much. And so what was striking to me is the kind of volume of discourse um, circulating in the city and its lack of authority. So rumor was a way I began to see to navigate that absence of authority while saying a lot and conveying to the clearly listening authorities what ordinary people thought. So it became a way to express one's opinion um, or to circulate information and ideas, however uncertain they were in actuality because they came from non-authoritative sources. They nevertheless allowed for people to talk about events um, critically sometimes, um, oftentimes in approbation of the decisions and actions of the people who make decisions and determine actions. And so that's what rumor was, or only it seemed to me were in this period. And they could be used by the historian to approach the opinions of large numbers of people, Mm -hmm. Um, not all of them high elites, um, many of them, many middling sort, and every once in a while, some uh, who come from the more popular classes. So it was a way to approach opinion, not without assuming that there was a significant amount of mediation, rumor itself being a part of that mediation as a form. So how have other scholars dealt with the issue of rumor, and what what does it mean to historicize it as you're doing in in, in the book? Well, um, there are a number of different ways in which it gets treated. Um, (laughs) In the early, I think, for much of the 20th century, whenever rumor was was treated as sort of sociologically, um, as one scholar puts it, there were sort of doctors of rumor trying to figure out how we can solve the problem of, <laughs> oh, miscommunication and misunderstanding. If only we could, you know, correct rumor, then um, different groups in society that were at odds or ordinary people in the government um, could uh, achieve some kind of mutual understanding. So rumor was really seen as a problem for mutual understanding, and sociologists and others saw their role as trying to um, correct it. How do we get more information out there? Um, how do we do that? And um, so 
you have a number of really interesting books, actually, some of them really quite good that were written on that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that at the end of the 20th century and then into the 21st century, um, we see rumor as a kind of inevitable part of our lives. And yet, I think we can study it um, historically. And by thinking, going back to your earlier question about what it means to be in this enlightened moment, Mm -hmm. that is where people are thinking about reason very self-consciously and they're thinking about its opposite. And in many ways, rumor was in that laundry list like superstition and traditional authority um, and other epistemological problems that are coming under fire. In this moment, um, rumor can be seen as the opposite of information, um, even if it isn't the opposite of solid opinion yet from uh, a kind of modern perspective. And so to historicize rumor in this period is to recognize that there are there's a current of thought that opposes the uncertainty of rumor and is seeking to find ways of being more certain about everything that is knowable. And this intersects also with the authority of the state. If the state is essentially all-knowing about the political and military decisions that are being made, all-knowing not only in terms of shaping how those unfold, but also in reflecting on how they went, Hmm. then what space is there for ordinary people to intervene at any level. And rumor became a way to actuate that, to actually, um, as a practice, enact it, while at the same time not claiming any particular authority that they frankly didn't have. So in some ways, that reaches towards my conclusions um, about the book, that this is a special moment, Mm -hmm. um, important because it captures one in which people don't see themselves as having the wherewithal to make claims to political authority in the way that we'll see 40, 50 years later. So we shouldn't see this as anticipating in any way the French Revolution. That wasn't really thinkable at this moment. Nevertheless, by engaging in these practices that by their very repetition and by the pushing of boundaries and by um, dialoguing in many ways, directly and indirectly with the authorities over what gets said and what can be said about diplomacy, about um, the conduct of war, about the actions of generals, about the decisions of the king, Mm -hmm. about whether, you know, the mistress can go off to war with the king or not. Um, and all sorts of things about taxes and recruit, military recruitment, by pushing the boundaries of what gets said, then people begin to reshape, at least in urban life, how opinions get formed. And even if they can't lay firm claims to their own right to be able to make decisions, they can talk about who does make decisions, and they can talk about who does have the right to make those decisions and so forth. And that kind of discourse becomes very common in this context. It's a way to not make a direct claim um, to speak authoritatively, but to engage in a certain kind of speech that encourages 
a sort of indirection, but an indirection that eases them into a very special zone. It creates zones, um, whether it's in a cafe or whether it's in a, a, a wig maker's shop. Um, it creates zones for determining what can be said and what is sayable, what's thinkable even about uh, criticizing contemporary politics. So let me ask you, Tabitha, about how you get at some of this material, some of these ideas in the book, you know, the archives and the sources that you're dealing with. You know, what were the different types of communication during this period? And what are the different types of sources that you used to get at these, you know, published, unpublished, oral, written? And how are you kind of working through those different types of materials uh, in the book? Well, the funny thing is, of course, when you know, I speak to my family about what I'm doing for these long years, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I say that I'm working on rumor and oral communication, you know, I get the double take. We're like, wait, don't you work on the 18th century? How do you know what people said? They did, they're recording devices. Okay. You know, so, you know, it's quite true. Um, and of course, it's not so easy. Um, it was a long time ago. And even if there had been recording devices, how would, how does one select? Um, how do you overhear what people said so long ago? And how mm-hmm. do you determine what mattered to them? What was just a throwaway statement? Mm-hmm. And what we have, the be- when I say the best sources available to us, what we have are a series of documents called by one archivist, um, the Gazetin Secret. And these were little gazettes, um, handwritten gazettes. And in fact, what they are, are police surveillance documents. The police agents and informants are sent into various public places, public gardens, um, gambling uh, houses, cafes, what we would later call salons. Mm -hmm. And they're listening in on conversations. And in some cases, they seem to be transcribing them quite closely. And we think that in part because of the sheer diversity, the ways that conversations jump from one subject to the next. Other times, they're more summary. Let's say something along the lines of, everybody in Paris is talking about X. Mm. And those we don't like as much. (laughs) We would appreciate more specificity. But what that points to is that the police agent is himself, mostly himself, some herself, but we'll come back to that. Sure. (laughs) Um, The police agent himself is selecting what's important to take down. And he's very conscious of the fact that those who will be reading his reports, including the lieutenant general of police and eventually members of um, of the sort of high secretariat. So uh, it could be the minister of who oversees Paris, sort of like a minister of interior, the um, minister of foreign affairs, sometimes the minister of war. So, and the king himself. So that he's highly sensitive of the power of language that in writing something down, that's insulting, for example, to any of these very high level people, that he could be himself authoring, in a sense, even indirectly, negative commentary about these higher-ups. And so sometimes they're apt to 
excise things that would be insulting mm. or um, or even to quite simply try to find the right language to talk about some of these events that are not necessarily within his purview or his training. So when talking about foreign politics, what do you call Maria Theresa of Austria? Is she the Archduchess? Is she the Queen of Hungary? Is she the future Empress? Is she the Empress once she becomes the Empress? And so according to French politics, how do you talk about these people? How do you even name them? And um, and this person, this agent who's writing this document has to make certain kinds of dis- decisions. Now, before it moves along to the higher-ups at court, a lot of times it's redacted. And so sometimes in the archive, we'll see two different sets of the same document, mm-hmm. one that's clearly meant for public viewing, uh, more public viewing, and then one that is the, the RAR version. And I should say that um, I corrected myself by saying that it's meant for public viewing. That could actually be the case. The lieutenant general of police could read through a document and think, hmm, this looks like one we should circulate in the public and we should emphasize certain articles within this particular document. So much like printed gazettes, these manuscript gazettes would circulate for price. Um, sometimes they had subscribers, but the police chief could decide himself to circulate them in Paris with the goal of influencing opinion. Mm-hmm. So part of what rumor is and does is circulate information and disinformation and uh, counterintelligence of an early ilk that authorities wanted Parisians to um, to believe. This was in particularly important uh, at one point during a siege. 1742, there was a siege and there was all kinds of really horrible feeling about the war that was happening. In fact, it was barely a war because France hadn't, in fact, declared war yet. So it Mm. wasn't official. And yet there was a French army that was in Germany and there was concerns about what was happening to that army army and um there was no information circulating because at one point one of the armies was holed up, in fact, in Prague. And with no letters coming home, there was deep concern and an increasing unpopularity. So the police chief was careful to circulate whatever good news could be circulated, and they weren't hesitant to fabricate it when they felt the occasion called for it. You come back uh, again and again, Tabitha, to this notion of voice, and I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about how you're thinking with and through this idea of voice throughout the book. Well, Voice became important because I was, initially I was really attached to the idea, um, my readers never liked it, but I was very attached to the idea that the, that voix, which in French is both voice and vote, Mm. um, that there was something that could be made of that. The imperial, Holy Roman emperors are elected, they aren't. Just uh, They don't just inherit it, despite what the Habsburgs seem to think. One doesn't inherit that throne. You actually have to be voted by elect in by electors. And so a lot of the early part of the book is really around this question of the election. And part of the discourse in Paris around the election suggested that Parisians saw themselves as um, as weighing in, not quite voting, but certainly weighing in. And they really saw the French king as being all determining in terms of the outcome of this election. And they weren't completely wrong. So voicing and voting for me became terms that were suggestive. Hmm. To say that 
this speech, even though it lacked authority, nevertheless engaged in a certain kind of agency. And it demonstrated a certain kind of agency. And it was my job to try to figure out what kind of agency this was. And, um, and I would conclude that, yes, this was a form of political subjectivity, that this was, even though we're not, we can't talk about citizens yet, and maybe even saying that I was anticipating that undermines in many ways mm. the case that I want to make. But, um, but I do wonder where, where that resides, where political wherewithal resides, because I don't have a belief people don't have it. The question is, is how they exercise it and how they express it. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that rumor was a way for people to voice um, not opinions in some simplistic way, not opinions as in your most heartfelt feelings about a particular event, but an amalgamation of all that's available to you. So what have you overheard? What have you read from the printed gazettes? How do you read a manuscript gazette that's dated from an enemy city and talks about your city or talks about your king, talks about these events? So how do you read that as a kind of indirect or uh, uh, a kind of circumlocution? And then how do you talk about that? It's a kind of amalgamation of all of that. Mm-hmm. So rather than opinion being something that we reach for inside of our true selves and then um, have the occasion to express in some unmediated way, which I don't actually think exists at any moment, but certainly didn't exist then, it's a coming together of um, the political media that's available at the time of the recognition of one's station in life and what um, what prerogative one has to speak about such matters, mm-hmm. uh, to whom one is allowed to speak about such matters. So if you're having a, a drink, a beer, and a cabaret or a bar, and you're talking to your fellow barmate, and um, you're talking about the war, that's a different conversation than if you are a lackey who has gone to a cafe and is talking to an officer. Well, I want to come back, uh, Tabitha, to something you mentioned earlier, and you talk about in the introduction of the book as the sort of inevitable telos of the French Revolution, you know, when you're working on the 18th century uh, as a historian. And, and I guess I want to ask uh, sort of a two-part question about the extent to which this is a book about the monarchy and changing perceptions of the monarchy or the ways in which, you know, subjects communicate amongst themselves, but also with the monarchy and the way that monarchy communicates with its subjects. Um, and then the extent to which this book is a book about, you know, either loyalty on the one hand, complicity or subversion, resistance, protest, sedition, those kinds of things. Yes. Um, so what does, what role does all of that play in, in, in the story? Well, Overarchingly, what I see is um, complicity, that there is rarely an attempt to undermine the monarchy Mm. in any wholesale way. And in fact, never, I would say, next to never. There are multiple attempts to undermine or maybe simply expressions of an absence of confidence in the current king who was Louis the mm-hmm. Fifteenth? Many people viewed as as weak and unfocused, um, 
unattached to getting the work done that was necessary and, um, and leaving his kingdom to the rule of others. But for the monarchy itself, there was incredible loyalty, um, attachment, a sense that, I mean, to use those terms even probably doesn't go far enough. Um, a sense of embeddedness that mm. who one is is fundamentally related to the um, who the monarchy is and what the destiny of the monarchy would be. And so to detach oneself from that is a very radical gesture of which we see very little and certainly isn't the subject of my book. What I'm showing in a sense is a kind of paradox, and that is that by increasing the modalities through which people can directly express their loyalty to the monarchy, um, some of them quite inventive and perhaps unanticipated by the monarchy itself, even though it participated, uh, it participated in the circulation of, as I said, uh, manuscript uh, news sheets and, um, and it approved certain gazettes, printed gazettes, that Ordinary people come over time to feel empowered to speak about affairs of state in more complex ways, mm. even in the approbation, right? So even in the affirmation of monarchy, as that splits into many different ways of supporting the monarch, oftentimes very critical of his ministers and his generals, then a certain kind of not just critical voice, but a voice of of affirmation and loyalty affirms a critical community itself. It affirms those voices that we were talking about a few minutes ago in their increasing wherewithal. I'm, I'm hesitant to use the word authority yet, but certainly they're increasing wherewithal. And we'll see in the next war, the seven years war, this develops in, in new ways, in mm -hmm. part because the enemy becomes very focused. Great Britain is the enemy. It's a clear enemy. And, um, and the criticism of Great Britain becomes a way to, and encouraged by the monarchy, becomes a way for Parisian opinion, certainly, probably French opinion more broadly, uh, to focus itself and authorize itself. I think the, the, the grounds for that, however, are there in the, um, the period of the War of Austrian Succession. And it's there that we have to pay close attention to these. Um, it's not that the forms have changed so much. It's that the stakes are so high. This is the moment in which the French king himself goes to war. And I think that changes the stakes. Yes, there were printed gazettes before, although they multiply significantly in this period. Um, yes, there were nouvelles à la main, which are what the uh, manuscript gazettes were called in previous periods, but they increase over this time, or so it seems. Um, yes, there were cafes, but they certainly multiply significantly in this period. All of that coming together, it seems to me, what ends up happening is that you have a, a confluence of institutions and media and a powerful public interest that's generated by the fact that the king himself is at war. So I want to take us back to something that's come up a few times already in our, in our conversation, Tabitha, this notion of public opinion. And I guess I want to ask about the relationship between how you're, you know, how you're working with rumor and what emerges in the book around this, this notion of public opinion. And then also ask about 
its relationship to, to, to a notion of a public sphere, you know, either in a, you know, a la Habermas or someone else that, that where, where does the, where does the book, what kind of intervention are you making with respect to some of those readings and understandings of the 18th century? How is the book complementing that or interacting with that literature? I think that, um, first and foremost, I should say that I really, I thought I could write this book in some ways without even engaging Habermasian notions of public sphere. Don't ask me why I thought I could get away with that, but I, and it turns out I couldn't. But, um, but I did try in part because I was so interested in oral and manuscript communications. Mm-hmm. And I don't disagree with anything fundamentally that Habermas is writing, except that, um, what he's talking about has to do, it's a slightly later, uh, later period. It really does have to do with, uh, a world of print. And it has to do with a world that is anticipating um, future developments mm-hmm. around a far more democratized understanding of uh, public engagement. And my interests lay, in fact, quite profoundly with making sense of the early modern world, um, of one in of a world of kings, a world of an aristocracy that had a kind of public authority in the streets, not just of Paris, but really all over Europe, that is hard if you don't come from a, a similar culture to understand. And I think, again, as an, this is where, as an American historian, it was, I think, important to emphasize that. And I think that our British colleagues have a much clearer sense of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was living in Britain for a little while, um, and in fact, when Princess Diana died. And I remember how, you know, people in the street, the, the, the tears, the anguish, the pain, and the sense that the Queen Mother needed to say something to them because they needed her in that moment. Mm-hmm. They needed her strength. They needed her. And I mean, the American presidency carries some of that weight. But I think that if you're an if you live in the United States and you grew up here, you don't have a full understanding of just how intense that relationship is, mm-hmm. of how important it is to live in a world where hierarchies are clearly defined. And you know who you are vis-a-vis those hierarchies at any given moment. And of course, there's change and there's slippage and there's developments. There's certain kinds of um, possibilities in the 18th century that didn't exist in the 14th century, for example, of personal advancement. But um, but the point is, is that this is a different world than the world that the French Revolution is going to point us to. So while I think that the book can be helpful for thinking about, you know, Article 11, um, or thinking about uh, the advent of free expression and speech, hmm. I think what it does most ably is help us to think about how prior to uh, constitution or bills of rights um, or any kind of legal prescription, people addressed the matters that mattered in their day, hmm. even in the face of these great hierarchies. Now, how do we, does that mean that there isn't a conversation to be had with uh, developing notions of the public sphere? Um, absolutely not. That the possibilities I think are incredibly rich. Um, if we think about uh, Charles Walton's work and his emphasis on paying attention to the fact that the police are helping us to understand mm-hmm. um, what these so-called opinions are, 
then um, again, I think that we have to, um, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that we have to moderate our view or our understanding of opinion. But I should say that I believe that that's how opinion is formed today as well. So the sense that somehow there's a teleology in which we have truer and greater access to the innermost opinion of the individual as a subject is um, one that I feel highly skeptical about. I think that our opinions are highly mediated um, as well, but by somewhat different circumstances. I guess I want to, uh, when, when I asked that question about the public sphere, I guess the word I left out is bourgeois. <laughs> and so I guess I want to I wanna say that <laughs> word out loud and also um, ask what, what role class plays in the book? Um, class plays a funny role in the book, in part because um, I am trying to look at how speech communities themselves define a class of subject by their very engagement in conversations around these matters of common interest. Mm -hmm. So class as a prior identification is, um, is not a leading subject of the book, although in looking at who's whenever we can identify, because frankly, as I said, rumor, the or on dit, the on is, of course, unidentified usually. So when we can, often through po- police arrest records, which have their own biases, but when we can identify who's speaking, um, I wouldn't be the first to say that there are often very high elites, so they can be uh, of a courtly order, but they live in the city or they spend time in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be bourgeois, but not in terms of uh, commercial or financial or certainly not industrial elites. Um, there can be writers, and those writers, as Robert Darnton's work shows, are not only those writers that we know from the high enlightenment, but also hack writers, people who are writing nouvelles à la main, people who are doubling as police spies, um, quite ordinary people, poets, playwrights, um, sometimes not very good poets or playwrights. Sometimes the people who are working in a cafe, for example, quite popular. In one case, I'm looking at a shopkeeper's wife. Or one, I mean, one, one case strikes me in particular is that after the first Dauphine dies, um, Maria Teresa Rafaela of Spain dies in childbirth. Of course, there's an immediate search for another princess to marry the Dauphin, who's the son of the king and heir to the throne. And at this point, everyone's interested in talking about who she might be. Will it be a German princess? Well, we don't know. Is she a Prussian princess? Hmm, she would be a Protestant. We don't know if that could happen. Should he marry another Spanish princess? Wouldn't that be incest? And so there's all of this discussion around not only um, the uh, the international politics and diplomacy involved with who this next princess might be, but also, well, German women are hardy. They seem to be able to have many children. <laughs> so we should give them serious consideration. And so all of a sudden, the, what chambermaids know and, um, and sort of what you, we might call a kind of feminine common sense beco- comes into play. So mm-hmm. that takes on a certain kind of authority. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the question. 
Oh, I was asking about class originally. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So, um, so class, right, from the perspective of class, I, I, rather than suggesting that a particular class is the one that we should study because they themselves are speaking more or speaking more freely or engaging and the kinds of activities consuming coffee or, um, you know, they are the people who go into cafes and so forth. Um, rather, I try to approach it from the perspective of what's being said. Are there particular kinds of discourse um, that circle around these events in many cases and or decisions and in looking at those events or royal decisions, who in fact is talking? And it turns out not that there's the huge admixture of people of all different kinds um, talking together as equals, but that there is this mixture in terms of people who are engaged in the circulation of information and opinions and who counts as having knowledge at a given moment changes depending on the event. Um, perhaps somewhat predictably now I want to ask about gender. <laughs> um, you have brought up the shop, the shopkeeper's wife and we talk about the chambermaids and, you know, I think about some of the, well, at least some of the literature on the, on the French Revolution and the, and the kind of turning against aristocratic culture and the sort of feminization of the aristocracy and the equation of rumor and intrigue and some of these things with, with femininity. That's the sort of literature that, that I'm thinking of. Yeah. Um, what role does gender, what role do actual women play in, in terms of who's doing the speaking? Um, and what role does, does gender play in, in thinking about rumor and especially with respect to diplomacy and war, you know, these traditionally, um, masculine territories? Okay. So the two, um, the two questions, one, um, about women speaking and the other one about the gendering of, of speech. In the case of the latter, it's interesting because we have the tendency to think about, and quite accurately, um, war and diplomacy as fundamentally masculine pursuits. And yet, uh, much as the critics suggest, life at court and um, life in the literary salons of the city, uh, women had a significant role to play. Um, elite women, usually very elite, uh, the queen's mistresses, the great women of the court, mm-hmm. the great aristocratic women were highly influential in uh, you know, problems of even military promotion, I would say, quite significantly, actually. One of the, uh, the great struggles of the period is, the, um, is that, according to people at the time, France didn't have the quality of general that it had had under Louis the Fourteenth, so Louis the Fifteenth was suffering from the fact that he didn't have the same caliber of military expertise as his great grandfather had, and so he turns to one general in particular who becomes the great hero of the war, and this is Maurice de Saxe, who of course is um, Saxon, mm. and um, and so the sense that. Uh, that military promotion, that um, the course of the war, that all the great glories of Louis XV are really due to this foreigner, um, people feel very much at heart. And in particular, suppose, according to my sources, 
women at court really felt this way. And it makes sense. Uh, they're concerned about promoting their sons or promoting their husbands, or promoting their nephews. Um, they're concerned about their family names, whether it's the paternal household or their marital household, then, um, then helping to navigate, helping to negotiate these relations of uh, patronage and clientage that um, characterized the, um, the preceding era and to a great extent the current era. I it would make sense that they would be influential and concerned about the direction that things were going for these appointments. And I think we do see that. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, the opinions that we're reading um, that are being expressed by reading about that are being expressed in fact by men are opinions that are being developed in mixed gender contexts um, but I don't have any huge amount of evidence for that. From the perspective of who my sources are quoting or paraphrasing, clearly it's mostly men. And we know that because when there's a woman, they say so. Um, and oftentimes in the police records, they say so as if she's out of place. And yet, again, we may be the victims of, I mean, this is where the 300 years really matter. <laughs> a lot of time has gone by. A lot of sources are lost. And, um, and we, we don't always know as much as we'd like to know. Just take the cafe, for example. Um, we know that women went to the cafe in the early part of the 18th century. We know that they'll go again in the um, late part of the 18th century. Based on everything that I've read, they weren't attending the cafe in um, the middle of the 18th century, at least not legitimately. Um, sometimes women cross-dressed and went, and we do have a couple of examples of those. But, um, but they got caught, obviously, the ones we know about, and they were, you know, censured for having done so. So largely what these sources are doing, um, again, paraphrasing and quoting men of different classes who are sitting around talking about high politics, but we also have the public gardens, and there you have a somewhat more mixed company. We, um, we have the bars, where, again, you have a somewhat more mixed company. Gambling establishments, probably men. But then every once in a while, in the case of, again, what we've come to call salons, but really we could just say private, that they call them, you know, mise en privé, you know, so in private houses uh, at the time, you would have women who were either leading discussions about whatever the matter was. And Madame de Graffigny, they would often talk about politics, not only literature. And in one case, I found, again, the shopkeeper's wife who had a number of low-level uh, foreign agents, diplomats of sorts, or the secretaries of diplomats, who um, would come to her house sort of as a safe house and talk about foreign affairs. And she herself generated opinions about current events as a result of the kinds of things that she was reading and overhearing um, um, in the conversations among her clients. So what that suggests to me is not that she, that we can say from a stark historiographical sense that she's an example of anything because she could certainly be an exception, mm -hmm. but she does suggest to us that we should continue to open up the field of research and not to resist the evidence that's before us. When we see that there are, are people of a lower class or 
that there are women who are engaging in these kinds of conversations, we shouldn't necessarily dismiss them by assuming that they're either aping their betters or um, somehow um, quoting uh, the men in their lives or that they're being manipulated or so what we're all being manipulated in our speech. Mm. There's no point in pointing to any one single group. So um, I was very intrigued by this one case and committed a, a chapter um, to her particular story. I want to come back to this notion, Tabitha, of citizenship that's come up a couple of times in our conversation, and, and especially this idea that you develop in the book of inchoate citizenship. Um, so what does that mean, and, and how are you using it in the book? Inchoate citizenship is a way to conceptualize and emphasize the point I was making earlier about voice, Hmm. that people are voicing, exchanging political ideas, um, exchanging political information, and sometimes formulating political opinions. And every once in a while, not with any particular anticipation of lasting results, every once in a while, they want those political opinions to count. And so for me, without having it inscribed within a constitution uh, or even in any form of customary law, the sense that people have something to say, that they're developing forms of informal participation was significant and needed to be bracketed, marked off, explored, researched, and come to terms with, not just as on the way to something else, but as significant in its own right then and perhaps even earlier. Well, there's so many other questions I could ask you, but I'm going to confine myself to just one, which is what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? I have been, um, as a result of, in fact, the research, because everybody says this, but of course I'm going to say the same thing. As a result <laughs> of my, <laughs> my earlier research, I had come across this zany dissident writer living in Liège and writing an outraged pamphlet, in fact, two outraged pamphlets about the outcome of the War of Austrian Succession, which was the piece of Aix-la-Chapelle notoriously terrible for French interests, despite the fact that certainly in the second half of the war, France was the clear victor. Hmm. So um, he and everybody else, in fact, quite, quite, quite outraged by this, but he really sees this as a betrayal of the French king. And so it fit with my thesis in the book about loyalty and all the rest of it. Um, It didn't quite work because it's a pamphlet, it's not rumor, and he's not living in Paris. So (laughs) it didn't work. But what what really grabbed me was that his story um, was both in the ministry, the archives of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and in the police archives. He's somebody who is in fact arrested, but arrested from across the border in Liège, where he lived and where he had his work printed, um, or not printed as would happen in the second case. So he's kidnapped, brought back from Liège, and thrown into the Bastille, where he writes outrage letter after outrage letter, trying to get free. And um, and then he's tossed even further um, as a prisonnier d'état, prisoner of state, into a prison in Lyon called Pierre-Ancise. So something about this really struck me. In those documents, he mentioned 
um, that he had, of course, been kidnapped, which was a disgrace, a scandal, and that he had been, um, that his papers had been extradited illegally from there. It's like extradition. That's an interesting word. You never see that word, extradition. Um, in you know, the kinds of things that I had seen. It's more common, as it turns out, in Britain. But in France, it's not a very common term. In fact, it's kind of a special word in this period. And so I thought, well, this is interesting that he would say this. What was extradition in the 18th century before the state system came into play, before the great era of extradition treaties? And so I found myself searching for um, really needles, haystacks, um, other <laughs> extradition cases that were like this particular writer's. And I came up with runaway wives, um, people who were engaged in mésalliances, these unequal or mixed marriages, um, to return to the question of class. Of course, people like Montrain, who, um, right. you know, right, who, who would be one example of this, adventurers, people who were pretending to be identity theft. I mean, so they're all kind of <laughs> spies. So I'm working on this book now that has a series of such cases that I hope will, again, help us. It will be another opportunity for me to me to intervene on the question of early modern political subjectivity um, and at the same time think about these larger developments, um, not just in France as a nation and as a state, but um, in the international and colonial context in which political subjectivity is being formed. Well, that sounds completely captivating, and I hope you'll come back on the podcast and talk to me about it when it's when it's in new book form. Tabitha, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and uh, for writing the book. Roxanne, thank you so much for allowing me to talk about it. <laughs> 